0: All right, good morning, friends. Let's uh, flip over to Romans. Starting a new book today. Made it through Acts. A year and a half or two years, something like that. So, (laughs) this morning, uh, we're really going to look at the theme of Romans. Um, We're not necessarily going to start our verse-by-verse study of it. That'll probably be uh, next week, God willing. But... uh, we are going to look at uh, the who, what, where, how, and why of it and, and talk about its, the gist of it and, and why it's important to our lives. So just from some facts about it. Uh, so Romans is believed to be written from Corinth on Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, it's written in about 57 AD. And uh, so that's why, I remember, when we were going through Acts, we talked about the fact that it had already been written along with some other letters. So Paul is writing to Romans and he's going to discuss mainly the gospel. And in fact, uh, the, the key verse we'll focus in on today there in, in chapter 1 and verse 16, go ahead and, and read it now. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it goes on, and we'll discuss that more today. But the point being is that there's something, it's, the gospel is foundational, which seems like a pretty normal statement to make, Right? That it's kind of, it's, it's why we're here, it's, the, it's everything that we point to, the idea that Jesus Christ paid for sins. And again, we'll get more detail. And so Paul is writing to the Romans, and there's three major reasons why he's writing to the Romans. The first one is he says, I want to come and I want to visit. I want to visit you. He's never been there before. Uh, there's obviously believers there. In the end of the book, he says, uh, there's I think 26 names through the whole book that Paul uh, sends greetings to or some sort of message to. And so Paul's writing to them, and, and in the end of the book, he says to greet Priscilla and Aquila. Now, remember, they had traveled with Paul at some point. He, the last we read of them in Acts is they are in Ephesus, but they originally lived in Rome. Remember, they were, they're Jews, and they were excommunicated or they were booted uh, by uh, Caesar uh, when there was a ban on Jews in Rome. So they leave, and then they end up meeting up with Paul he takes them on a journey and he drops them off there in Ephesus. But now when, at this point, evidently they've made their way back to, uh, to Rome, to Italy. And so he sends a greeting to them. We also know that he greets Phoebe. Phoebe is the woman that carries the letter for him and, and she goes to Rome. and So she takes it to them. So there's, both, uh, there's clearly churches that are in Rome. Uh, that are, There's believers that are gathering together. And so he's writing to them, saying, I I care about you, I pray for you, and I want to come visit you. And he says there, and we didn't read it, but in verse 15, he says, I I want to go there. I long to preach the gospel to you. I want you to know what the gospel is. And and really, that's what Romans is, and and kind of the why and the what of Romans. It's a letter that breaks down from every side... From every idea, he even brings up objections, and he addresses those objections, and it's a letter to say, this is exactly how the gospel works, what the gospel does, and what we can expect the gospel to do in our lives. And that's, it, that's a very important thing. Knowing why we, know, we believe what we believe, knowing why or what we understand from the scriptures is very important, it, it guides us. It's, it's not just to, to know the Bible says something, but to know why it says it. Now, I'm not portraying that we can know the why or the what of everything in the Scripture. I, I don't think we can. Uh, one of the things that still baffles me is First Corinthians 15 when Paul says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then why is there baptism for the dead? And you're like, there is? I don't remember that ever. So you're like, why does he talk about that? So you can go home and wonder about that all you want. But the, the, but the point being is that in, in this case with the foundational reality of how a person gets saved, what happens there, that's why Paul is writing. This last week, my family and I were, were camping up at Taydenapam. It's off Highway 12 there in Washington. And um, I thought, it's a long story, I thought I was getting an ear infection because I have them from time to time. And so I went to the clinic there, which by the way, in Mossy Rock, it's incredibly cheap. It was amazing. But I went to the clinic in Mossy Rock, so if you want to drive two and a half hours, you can go there too. Um, <laughs> And, and I went to the doc and he checked my ear, all that kind of stuff. But when I was coming out and I was paying and so forth, I was talking to the lady there and, and I asked her, I said, oh, did, do you, did you grow up here? And she said, yeah, you know, I lived, lived here my whole life. And I said, well, you know, did you like, just making conversation. I like to find out about areas and stuff when I go there. And I think Mossy Rock's like 400, 500 people. And Morton is like 1,100 people or something like that. So it was small towns. And I, and I said, oh, so you up oh yeah, I grew up here. And I said, well, did you like it? What did you think about growing up here? And She goes, well, you know, it was a, she was a Hispanic lady, and she said, you know, I, my my family is very religious and, and very conservative, so I didn't really fit in with many of the other Hispanics, but I didn't fit in with the, the white kids either, and I, I just felt kind of, I didn't know where I belonged here. And I said, well, that's interesting, you know, so how did you overcome that, or what did you what did you do to, to change that? She goes, well, you know, I try to get involved in different things and whatnot. And I go, okay. And I said, well, I go, if you don't want me asking, you know, what, uh, what religion is your family and, and how did that play in uh, to your upbringing? And she said, well, we're Catholic. And, and I said, oh, I go, do you, do you believe it? And she goes, well, you know, I don't, I don't practice it as much as I used to, um, but I, I, I definitely believe it still. I don't, I don't think I'm going to let that part of my life go. And I go, okay, right on. I said, well, um, I go, here's the thing just a pro tip, you never tell people you're a pastor, <laughs> right? Because one of two things typically happens. Either you're instantly elevated or instantly despised, and neither one of those things are good, right? So, so I just say, I go, oh, okay. I go, well, you know, um, I, I've read a little bit from the Dalai Lama, and I've read a little bit from the Quran, and I've read a little bit from the Bible. And so, um, you know, kind of each, there seems to be some interesting things in the Gospels that that Jesus said about himself. And she goes, uh-huh. And I said, uh, I, go, I go, so what you're telling me is, that you, do you believe then that because Jesus, evidently God's son, came and died, that somehow you get forgiveness through that? And she goes, yeah, I believe that. And I go, and you believe that he rose from the dead? She goes, yeah, absolutely, I believe that. And I go, okay, that's cool. I go, uh, well, let me ask you this. Why does some dude who claims to be God Dying for you, forgive your sins. Doesn't that seem a little weird? That, that he should? Why? Why would that matter? And she goes, I don't know. She goes, you know, I used to be up on my catechism, but it's been years, and I haven't really. She goes, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what that matters. And here's the key. The key isn't to make, to make a point that there's ignorant people out there. The key is this: that she has a belief that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead, and through that, she's forgiven over her sin through the shedding of blood. Which is a foundational salvation belief, right? But she doesn't know why it happens. And it's not, I don't think it should surprise us that when we don't know why, that we start to say, you know, I'm just not really into my religion anymore. In her case, she's just saying, like, I don't really follow Catholicism. Talk. She probably doesn't go to a priest. I'm just, I don't know what, what she does and doesn't do. But she did allude to doing some partying and stuff like that. And she just, you know, she's like, I just, I just don't adhere strictly to it, but, you know, I just, I'm not going to give it up. I, I know it's true. And this is an interesting thing, because when we don't know why we believe what we believe, it can lead us to some places where we get complacent, or we just sort of like, ah, I, it's like a good luck charm almost. Like we go, yeah, I think it's true, but it doesn't help me today. How do I work through this today? And so what Romans does for us, with the, with the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, what it does for us, is it tells us exactly what Jesus did. It tells us exactly why it works. It tells us exactly how to appropriate it or adopt it or bring it into our lives and then exactly what it should look like when we're doing that. Does that make sense? And so when we understand, and it's interesting because he even says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, see, shame over the gospel, again, it's a symptom. If I'm ashamed of the gospel, what it means is, because how does shame work? I don't really trust in it. Because shame is based on something that we think is a negative, right? So if I experience shame about something, if I experience shame about something I've done in my life or shame about my body or shame about, uh, you know, who I am, if I experience shame, what I'm saying is or what I'm feeling is I feel like there's something inadequate in me that others might despise and I, and I feel awkward or bad about it, Right? and we can feel shame about all sorts of things we can feel shame about our level of intelligence we can feel shame about, it just it doesn't even it doesn't even matter we can feel shame about all sorts of things and typically what it is it's that it's this acknowledgement that there's something lacking and i'm embarrassed by it when we feel shame for ourselves so if I'm feeling shame about the gospel, that's not the ultimate sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's a testimony. It's a, it's a side effect. It's something inside of me telling me I truly don't embrace and understand what the gospel is. And so I feel shame. I'm embarrassed by it. Just like if we had, and I know this is a common one, but if you have the cure for someone's ailment, you don't feel shame about that, do you? You don't, you, don't, you don't come up and, and say, hey, you know what, uh, I see that you have a snake bite, and that you're, it's turning black, and it's necrotic, and it's going to work your way up your leg, and you're going to, you know, uh, it's going to paralyze your larynx, and you're going to asphyxiate, asphyxiate and, I, and I'm cool with that. But I, I don't really want to show you this. No, you're like, hey, you need to, you need to take this. It's going to taste terrible, or it's going to be an injection, or whatever it is. When we find something that works, whether it's a pizza place we like or something that we've purchased or whatever it is, we shamelessly advertise it, don't we? It's, it's why pyramid schemes work, right? Because we come along, and we're like, look, there's this product. I want to sell you this product, and you can sell other people this product. And you go, wow, this is a great product. I'm going to sell this to other people too, regardless of what it is. So when we're dealing with and working through what the gospel is, It's important because it will dictate really the course of our life. What we esteem the gospel to be. If the gospel is just this tenet of faith, and I'm not trying to mock or put anybody down, but if the gospel comes in my becomes in my life a tenet of faith, or something that I kind of knew one time, or something that I kind of I go to church and we kind of fellowship and I drink my coffee and I go my way, then that will be the end of my life as far as my spiritual life and interacting with God and in the kingdom. But when I truly understand what the gospel is and why it affects my life, why it's important and what it can actually do and heal in me, then all of a sudden I have a direction. All of a sudden I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I don't have a devotional because it's the Christian thing to do and Max Lucado told me to. I have a devotional because I know that interfacing with the God of the universe will change my eternal soul. And now I know why it works. It's not osmosis. It's not magic. It's actual uh, a relationship, and it's a spiritual dynamic at hand. Does that make sense? So that's what Romans is. It's a guide for us to help us to embrace what it is that he's trying to say. So the second thing is, or the third thing after it's remember, it's um, he's telling them that he's coming. Secondly, he's making a statement about what the gospel is. And thirdly, he's addressing a conflict between Jews and Greeks, a conflict that we explored in depth in, in Acts. And again and again, he's addressing what salvation is, how it occurs. He's addressing how there's no, uh, there's no more Jew or Gentile, that in Christ we're all one. Um, he, does, he makes some points, and we'll look at it, to the Jew first and the Gentile, and different comments that he makes about the gospel, and, and we'll look more uh, at that uh, in, in depth. Then who's he talking to? It's interesting because when he makes the address, he, he's making it, he doesn't say to the church there in Rome, he's saying to those who are called and belong to Christ. So he's speaking to Jews or he's speaking to Gentile, and the answer with that is that he's speaking to both. He makes references in chapter 1 and three, verse 3. He talks about that he's, that he's excited to write to all the Gentiles, uh, including the ones that he's writing to. He talks in chapter 2 when he's talking about Abraham. He says, Abraham, our father. He's addressing Jews also. So the, the, the church that is in Rome, we know there's believers, at the very least Priscilla and Aquila, and obviously others. Remember last week we talked about uh, the, the people that came from three taverns to visit him and so forth. But the, so you have believers that are in Rome, and you have Jews. Remember, he called the Jews, and they came to him also. So he's addressing it's, it's the word saints or holy ones. It's the most used word in the Bible for Christians, for people that are believers, whether Jewish or Gentile. So he's writing to people to help them understand. Remember, he hasn't been there. We don't know exactly how the gospel got there. We know there were Romans at Pentecost. Uh, we know that from Acts chapter 2, that there are people from Rome that were there at Pentecost. And it's very probable that they went back to Rome and preached the gospel and saw, what, you know, testified to what they saw. And uh, believers were born out of that. And again, not to get too far off track. But remember, that's kind of an intertestamental period where you have this weird thing that's happening where people don't know. They don't have the New Testament. Right? They don't have letters. They don't, not, they don't, they don't have a printing press, <laughs> you know, every, they, they, So there's a profound ignorance that was happening in Christianity because there just wasn't a way yet to completely communicate everything that was going on. You had word of mouth, you had uh, itinerant preachers, these type of things. Remember, even um, Apollos preached the gospel, but only he knew only the baptism of John. So he's out there preaching that Christ is the Messiah. And the baptism of John, and it's Priscilla and Aquila that come along later and say, hey, bro, there's a little bit more to that story. And then he's able to communicate all the better. So that for today, um, to, to kind of give the, the breakdown of how Romans is going to work, in chapter 1, 1 through 15, he just gives his reasons and his personal, uh, uh, both corporately and, and personally, why he wants to come. In chapter 1, verse 16 to chapter 4, he just talks about why we need salvation by faith why it's important, what's what's important about it. Then in chapters, uh, chapter 5, 1 through chapter 8, he just talks about the results of justification or the idea of what does it mean or what can we expect as saved individuals in in the inner life. In chapter 9 through 11, he's just talking about a breakdown. Um, Essentially, he expresses radical sorrow over the fact that the Jews in large had rejected the gospel, but that God's purpose was not done for them. Uh, He also talks about sovereignty, and I look forward to that Uh, because the sovereignty that Paul talks about is not God decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell pre-birth, but that, in fact, God was, in his righteousness, sovereignly chose Abraham, sovereignly chose Isaac over Ishmael, sovereignly chose Jacob over Esau to bring Christ and the gospel to us. So it's important to note that sovereignty in the book of Romans, and really everywhere in the Bible, it has nothing to do with the individual choice to receive Jesus. We can talk about more, more about that later. It has to do with God sovereignly choosing people that he used to bring Christ and the gospel to us. Does that make sense? Just like you might say in, 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 in your life, God called me to go here. God called me to go there. God made a sovereign choice. He's not unjust for choosing you to go do something. right? You wouldn't say, oh, you're so unjust, God, for choosing me to do this. Or you're so unjust for choosing that guy. That's the sovereignty that the Scripture talks about in bulk, not individual decision. Uh, the idea of a Calvinistic point of view of saying that, that God chooses before birth whether a person will be saved or not saved, and they have no choice in the matter. That's not what Romans talks about. And then lastly, in chapter 12 through 16, we get these very pointed, very um, uh, educational, light-giving, encouraging, practical uh, working out of our salvation and working out of how it will come out of our lives as we yield and we believe Christ. Now back to the, the verses here at hand in verse, uh, Romans 1, verse 16, which I would say is the theme verse uh, to, the, to the whole book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, what he's going to go through and combat in a lot of this is, is how a person gets saved what it means and what it means to be saved. It's important that he starts off with this. He says, "The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes." So the gospel, the word "dunamis," you may be familiar with that if you you know been coming to church for a long time. If you haven't, don't worry about the word "power." It's the same word "dunamis." Now, if you are familiar with that, it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter two. So when the apostles, uh, well, actually, it's more than the apostles, uh, when a bunch of people are standing there, they're talking to Jesus, and they ask him, and they say, is this the time that you're going to return the kingdom to bring your kingdom to the earth? And what they're asking him, because they didn't necessarily understand all that Jesus was doing, they're saying, are you going to now whoop the Romans and bring us back to our formal glory as Israel? And Jesus' response is, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Because remember, multiple times, two or three times in the Gospels, Jesus tells the fellas, the big 12, I am going to die, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to die, and i rise again from the dead. And they always argue with him. Remember, at one point, Peter grabs him, shakes him, he says that the word there is to violently seize, and he says, this shall never be, Lord. <laughs> well, okay. Then you have uh, another time where he says, they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he says, I'm gonna, they're going to capture me, they're going to mock me, they're going to torture me, they're going to slay me, and I'll rise from the dead. And it says that they feared because they knew not what the resurrection of the dead meant. This is the apostles, <laughs> right? They didn't know entirely what was going to happen because those, the idea of the dying and the ascendant Messiah was not really taught or thought about in Jewish culture. It was more the dominant Messiah. The Messiah is gonna come back, he's gonna whoop the Romans, that Israel will come to their proper place, that they'll be justified. And that shouldn't surprise us if you there's a great book back there that we in our little bookshelf thing we're trying to start written by Craig Blomberg, and it's Jesus and the Gospels. And one of the things that Blomberg does in the beginning of that, you can read it for yourself, it's very interesting, is he goes through, and the first part of that book is all about what was going on in Jesus' day. What was the culture like? What were the traditions like? What were the teachings like? What was Judaism like? What were the rabbis like? You know, And, and one of the things that was very heavy in Jewish culture is because the previous 800 years before Christ, they had been basically smashed by any group of Gentiles that had come along, which explains why they try to kill Jesus every single time he mentions that Gentiles can have faith, why they try to kill Paul every single time that Paul says that Gentiles can have faith and these different things. Anyway, I'm getting too far off track. Forgive me for that. But you have, back to the, the thing. So you have this, this thing that they didn't necessarily understand all that Jesus came to do. So when they ask Him in, in, uh, uh, in Acts 2, hey, is this when you return the kingdom? They're just going based on tradition that they had always had and always been taught as Jews that Jesus would accomplish. So He says, no... But instead, I want you to wait here for me, and at the right time, my Father will send His Holy Spirit. I'm paraphrasing right now. That My Father will send the Spirit, and the Spirit will come upon you, and He'll be in you. And when that happens, you'll receive power, dunamis, the same word we have here, to be my witnesses. Not to witness, although that may be true, but to be something. You'll receive power to be something that you weren't before. You'll receive power not just to, to have and accomplish a task, although that might be a byproduct, but to actually have identity, to be something that, for my, my, my father's kingdom. So now we fast forward to here in Romans, and he's saying, look, it's the dunamis, the dynamic. It's where we get our word dynamite. It's the, it's the, uh, the power and the way the, the, that God gave to bring righteousness. That's why it's the only way. It's the only way because it's the way that God designed and empowered for humanity to be right with him. So when we look at something like this and we consider these things, why is it so important to remember that? Because, one, he's coming away from the old covenant, and we're moving from the old covenant into a new covenant. Number two, for us, because we're crazy, and we can have all sorts of weird thoughts of how we're right with God. Right? I mean, you can go to major denominations today that will say, and I'm not trying to put anybody down, I'm just making examples. Major denominations that are alive and well and on our peninsula and the whole nine years that will say, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you are not saved. There's major denominations that say that. Major denominations that say, if you don't use the King James Bible, you you don't have the original, you're not saved. Lots of ones that say, if you haven't been baptized, you're not saved. So, All of a sudden, in our modern times, just like in their times, there all these things come along, and they say righteousness doesn't just come by faith or by the gospel. It comes by works. It comes by doing. And so, with with the tongues, it's they say it's the only way that the Holy Spirit could truly say, could truly show that you're saved. Which is odd because, like, that's weird. We even sang a song about it this morning. Jesus said, Herein shall all men know you're my disciples, if you speak in tongues. No, if you love each other. That's how people know, if you love each other. So with the, with the King James, it's, it's based on this idea that somehow uh, when William Tyndale yelled, Open the eyes of the king as he was being burnt to death, And seventy years later, or hundred years later, whatever it is, the the King James decided to to authorize seventy-two scholars or seventy scholars to begin the translation. They say, "See, that was that was when when it says that the the new would come." That's speaking of the King James Bible, and so therefore you have to have that Bible. And so, and you you ask him like, "Well, that's really weird because all these other translations are translated off the same fifty-seven hundred scraps of the Bible that we have, both old and new." Relatively speaking, and so all of a sudden, I've never seen a unicorn. Have you seen a unicorn? It's in the King James Bible because they didn't necessarily translate some of the words for oxen correctly. So it's it's one of those things where somebody had a passion for accuracy, and they let that passion for accuracy and a misinterpretation of the scripture give a give a uh, a condition by which a person must be saved. So when we start breaking all these ideas and these things down, what we start to realize that the importance of this simple idea, that the dynamic by which a person can be made right with God is purely based on what Jesus did. See, when Jesus went to the cross, this is the gospel, right? Nice and simple, but we'll never, I think, fully get it. When Jesus goes to the cross, when he takes on, the Bible says that he took on the likeness of sinful flesh for us, that God took on the likeness of sinful flesh. John, in his letter, tells us that if anybody says that he did not come in flesh, he is accursed. It's a rejection of who Jesus is. That God came in flesh, and he dwelt amongst human beings. He was born, and he had parents, and he hung out at the temple, and then got lost. I'm not saying he was lost, but his parents lost him. They come and pick him up when he's 12, and then he, he knows, it seems to be that Joseph probably died, his, father, his, his earthly stepfather, because he's never mentioned again in the Gospels. And for example, when, when Jesus tells John from the cross, look after Mary, if Joseph was alive, that would have been like a cultural radical slight. That would have been essentially slapping Joseph across the face, saying you're an unworthy father. It would, It's unthinkable. So the idea that Joseph is still alive is, at this point is he, he died. He knew what it was to lose a stepfather that loved him and cared for him, that kept his mother after his mother came to him and said, "Don't worry, I'm pregnant." But it's miraculous. I mean, that's an on, that's an incredible guy right there. That was just, you know. So then, he knew what it was to be hurt. He knew what it was to be rejected. He knew what it was to be doubted. He knew everything about the human experience. And when he goes to Calvary, he completes. Thousands of years of prophecy and type and shadow. So, what the Bible tells us when he shed his blood, if you recall back to what John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, when he shed his blood, he fulfilled every sacrifice and what every sacrifice pointed to in the Old Covenant whether it was a sin offering, right? A sin offering was an offering that you brought. If you acknowledge sin in your life, that I did this thing and now I'm coming to Christ and I'm I'm coming to the priest, I'm coming to God. By faith, coming to God, bringing the sacrifice. Then from there, it could have been the burnt offering where a burnt offering, you never had to bring a burnt offering your whole life. It was just simply to say, I love God. He's been good to me. And so you brought a whole burnt offering. It was consumed. All those offerings in the tabernacle and the feast, they all point in some way to who Jesus is, even down to the, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was acacia wood. It's a wood that was used uh, for, many, for a long time by Greeks. You can read all the way back to like 800 um, uh, BC where Greeks began to use the sap out of acacia wood as a healing balm. Even, even farther back, there, there are nations that use acacia wood and, and use the sap out of it as a killing bomb. So the Ark of the Covenant is, is wood on the inside, speaks of humanity, and it's gold on the outside. which speaks of divinity. You have the fact that, that God said it was, that it was, the lid was called the mercy seat. And the, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes in with the blood of a red heifer and sprinkles it. And he said, God said, I will appear to you above the mercy seat. So we have our greater mercy seat in Christ, where he, when he shed his blood. So it just it, you go down the line, and everything in the Old covenant all pointed to Messiah coming and fulfilling that, and not just smearing or blotting over sin, but actually cleansing and forgiving sin. So then he rises from the dead. You know, if we were to be slain for our sin and we did not have Christ, we would stay dead, because we deserve it. We would stay eternally destroyed. Whereas Christ could not be held. He was righteous. He is righteous. And so he rose from the dead by the power of God. And it's, it's not just sort of some weird fairy tale. When you start looking at the prophecies that led up to Christ coming in, it's incredible. And so Paul says this, we need to refocus, especially in a day and age where there's there's Judaizers and there's people that are trying to obstruct the gospel, just like today, but maybe more so then, I don't know, I I couldn't make a comparison, but on all the noise and all the other suggestions that come from inside, that come from outside, that Paul says this is the only power that can save a person, the only dynamic, the only dunamis, it is the gospel. There is no righteousness through law. There's no righteousness through good habits. There is only righteousness through the blood of Christ. Now this is both scandalous and delightful, right? Because there's a part of us that the legalist kind of creeps out of all of us and we go, I don't know about that. I don't know if I can really buy into that. That righteousness comes simply through the blood of Christ. Just for kicks, I wrote down Ten verses, and there's many, many, many more. But ten verses in the Scripture that talk about the fact that righteousness only comes by blood. And it's funny because I always tell the people in our class, our communications class, don't just spam out a bunch of verses because nobody will get it. So we're going to turn to them all. We're spamming nothing. First, if you don't mind, turn to Colossians chapter 1. These are great underliners, if if that's how you roll, or note-takers, or however you'd like to look at it. In Colossians chapter 1, it says this, For in him that is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, you have peace with God today because of the blood of the cross. We have peace with God today, not because you came to church today, not if you had devotions today, not if you've refrained from the F word your whole life. You have peace with God because of Christ's blood and because he reconciled you to God at his death. Nothing we've done can reconcile us. Even the Old Testament, it was all by faith. How was Abraham? Abraham is pre-law. There was no law. I mean, there was some sort of communication. We don't know what it was. But Abraham was esteemed righteous because he believed God. God said, I'm going to bless you and make a great nation. Abraham said, sounds good. And and God said, all right, I'm blessing you. You're right with me because you believe me. We're like, no, it can't be that easy. Well, I don't know. Look at Abraham. He goes on to have relations with a maid Crank out Ishmael, loves Ishmael. When God says to Abraham, hey, it's time to ditch Ishmael, that's a little bit more harsh than what God said, but it's time to get rid of Ishmael because Isaac's the promised one. Abraham's response is, oh, that Isaac or that Ishmael will live before you. In other words, Abraham's response to Isaac the promised child was, no, I want it to be Ishmael. And then he creates this weird family dynamic where Sarah hates Ishmael and she hates it and everybody gets booted. Does that sound like a real healthy family dynamic? No, he messed it up. And yet God completed what he was doing through him in Isaac. Then you get the law. Paul's even going to tell us as the law continues, does the law nullify righteousness by faith like it was with Abraham? He says, absolutely not. The law did not nullify righteousness with faith. The the man that brought his family or the woman that went by herself and brought the offering for her family, that there was faith there. They were saying, come on, you can't tell me there's no faith in laying your hand on a goat and saying, my sin transfers to this goat and then slicing its throat in front of your family. There's faith there. That God's going to do something great through this. This is just the way he's called me to do it. Because I know someday Messiah will come and will actually cleanse completely my sin. It's always been faith. There's peace by the blood. In Ephesians chapter 1. So you go, why are we going through all these? It seems like, I'm not saying that you're saying this, but you might be saying this. Because I would be saying this if I were you. Why go through all these? Because we forget. And we don't believe it. And you know, it's, it's bad when we don't believe it for us. It's worse when we don't believe it for others. It's, it's terrible when we look at someone else and go, you need to do this, this, or this. This is what you should do. Then you can be saved. Or you're not doing this. You saw this movie, and that makes you not saved. No, it probably just makes them unwise, if that. It doesn't make them not saved. Because salvation only comes through blood. Peace only comes through blood. In Ephesians 1, verse 7 He says this to the praise. Excuse me. uh, In Him we have redemption through His blood, for the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Riches of grace, lavished grace. Our trespasses are forgiven through His blood. We have redemption, which is the Greek word to be to redeemed out of slavery, to be bought off a slave block and set free. We've been redeemed by his blood. We have not been set free by our behavior or our being good people. Fruit is fruit. We're not saying being good people is bad. We're just saying we have to get away from any idea that we've somehow earned something, that we can somehow do something. Because if we garner favor with God because we do stuff, how much favor do we really have? Especially when we start thinking about our thought life. All the people made in his image we've despised. All the people we've looked upon and measured. All the people we've esteemed ourselves better than. When it comes down to brass tacks, if we're really going to make a stance that says, my works and my thought life and who I am is what makes me righteous, we are on thin ice, friends, if we're honest. And so to, to know, not to justify sin, but to know in my darkest hour that I have peace with God because of his blood. Because he bought it for me. Because he loves me and he cares about me. I have peace with God and you have peace with God because he loves you. Not because you're earning it because he despises you and tolerates you. He cares for you. He has great things for you. And every page, and every place, in the Old and the New Testament testifies to that. In the Old Testament, it's all testimony. Even when God wiped out people groups, it was to preserve the lineage of Christ. So that people could be saved. Everything he's ever done in our history, historical timeline has been to bring you to heaven and to bring everyone around you that's willing to heaven. It's his goal. It's his purpose. Christ said, to, I'm going to build my kingdom. and The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can go on. It says in Hebrews chapter 9. Don't worry, there's two in Hebrews, so it'll be, it'll be easy In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, it says, how much more, he's making a comparison to uh, Yom Kippur, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In this case, he's making this point. He's saying, look, Christ's blood purifies our conscience. That the eternal spirit that God was led in 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 the Trinity, to send His Son by the Spirit, that Jesus walked by the Spirit, and that ultimately He went to the cross by the power of the Spirit, that because of that truth of who God is and what He wants for us and in us, it purifies our conscience from dead works. We can leave them behind. If righteousness comes by works, then you and I can't leave them behind. We have to keep revisiting. Like a kid, you ever have one of your kids break something and they actually showed remorse? Right, and they and, and sometimes they'll they'll, they'll like keep going back. It's like it's like if your kid breaks a vase, and you go, oh, "Okay, that's disappointing," and then you sweep it up and you throw it away. If they just stood at the trash can the whole time crying, like the vase, the vase, it would tear your heart up, wouldn't it? Like it's okay, it was a vase. Sure, it was Ming and worth a million. It's all right. If it's us, it was from IKEA, right? It was like two ninety nine. Like it doesn't matter. But you know, that's the thing. Like, if your kid kept going back to the trash can and, his, and their their conscience couldn't be cleansed, it would grieve you. You'd be like, just leave the van. I'll take the trash out. Just forget the vase. It doesn't matter. You made a mistake, you learned from it. We're moving on. The blood of Christ, it should cleanse our conscience. Not because we're like, ah, it didn't matter what I did, but because we go, God covered it. He took it away from me, what I did. This is why the gospel is the power of God. It's the dynamic. It's the only way a person can be saved because it's the only way to truly be righteous. It's by trusting in what God did and not what we did. It always has to be that. In chapter 10, right across the page there in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, you see, in the Old Covenant, the high priest went in once a year on the Day of Atonement to, 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 the, to the Ark of the Covenant. And in fact, uh, the lore teaches us, and by lore I mean historical writings from rabbis, that teaches us that they would actually tie a rope around the high priest's leg. And if they heard a thud after he went in there, they pulled him out. Because there were certain things that God said, you can't sweat. Uh, I can't remember all the things that were, but the whole picture was the high priest was supposed to come in at rest. And with confidence in the blood sprinkling upon the, the, the mercy seat. And so in this, there's this comparison being made and saying that Christ through His veil, His flesh, when it was torn open for us, that that made a new and a living way, a way through life, a way through... When you think of life, you think of probably vibrance and joy and you know these things that you see in like beer commercials or whatever, just going out and being free. The commercial's alive, lie. This one's not. But here's the picture, that we get to come into the holy of holies, that you can come into the presence of God, not because you're a good person, because you're not, and neither am I, but you get to come into the holiness and to be before the Lord because he loves you and Jesus paved the way for you through his blood. That you get to pray, that you get to sing to him, that you get to cry out to him, that you get to weep on his shoulder, not because we have done anything to earn that, But because of the gospel, it's that dynamic, it's that powerful that he purchased this way for us. It's both humbling and liberating at the same time to think that could someone really love me just the way that I am? Could someone really universally accept me for all of my faults and and have me in their presence? Could someone who knows every single thing and every single thing I've thought and done still receive me? And that's yes, because he did and he does through the blood of Christ. So when Paul is writing these things, he's saying, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to be saved. It's not some trite little assertion of, of uh, doctrine. It's the reality that we walk in. And when we embrace that, when we covet that, when we consider that, when we take our thoughts captive with that, when we reject you know, legalism, when we reject uh, Satan suggestions when we reject this word, world's weirdness our mind's weirdness our heart's weirdness and we stick to the black and white and we stick to the scripture all of a sudden there is freedom there and there is peace there because the scripture tells us there's mercy and there's kindness it says there I won't go to them all but in Hebrews 13 we're told in verse 12 that his blood makes us holy we're holy by his blood meaning set aside, that you and I are set aside for God, not because we do everything right, but because His blood set us aside. That when we receive Christ as our Savior and His Holy Spirit sealed us, attached to us in our souls, that we're now set aside for the Lord. He goes on in Luke chapter 22, and we have the communion today. He says the new covenant was through His blood, that that came through blood. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, we've been freed from our sins because we're victorious, hardcore Christians. No, because of His blood. You've been freed from your sins because of His blood. That's good news to think that where you sit right now and when you go home and when you get up tomorrow and you go to bed and all these things, you're freed from your sin. You're free from condemnation. You're free from judgment from God because of the blood of Christ. That's where peace is. To say, Lord, I know that I'm holding on this part of my life and I need to repent from that. I'm so glad I'm at peace with you. I'm so glad that I'm not obeying out of law, but now I get to enjoy love. And now when I disobey, I I don't disobey law, I disobey relationship, I disobey love. And it takes it into a new context where there's still peace in that. It's It's like a good marriage or a good best friend. Not, we're not, in, we're not uh, endorsing being rude or lame, but you know what makes a good friend is when you are rude or lame, they forgive you, right? What marriage survives without love and forgiveness? None, <laughs> none. I mean, I guess it could on, on paper, but for it to be rich in what it is, love and forgiveness. And so it is with Christ. He says, you know, what? our relationship is based on love and forgiveness that I purchased for you, Jesus would say. From Calvary. Romans 5, 9, we're justified by His blood. Romans 3, our atonement comes through His blood. 1 Peter, again, says that we've been redeemed by His blood. Every single time our standing comes into consideration in the Scripture, it's always by the blood of Christ. It always is. Now, we'll get to chapters 12 through 16 that say, look, this is how this should work out in your life. And faith does work things out in our life, doesn't it? Because faith isn't just this thing like, I have faith and therefore, but faith is something active. We're told that it's alive and it's active inside of us. So when a person sees the gospel, not, I want a better life, that's a false gospel. In other words, when we come or if we've come and we see this, I think, a lot in Christianity, unfortunately, where sometimes, I'm not trying to make accusations here, it's just something that I've, I think I've observed and I've considered because it's interesting to me, where you have like this plea like, Jesus loves you, true. Jesus wants to bless you, true. Jesus wants to change your life, true. Now, who wants to raise their hand and have Jesus? And so a bunch of people raise their hand and go, my life stinks and I want it to be changed. But what have they accepted? They've accepted that their life stinks and they want it to change. So what is salvatory faith? And this isn't to make people offenders for word. This isn't for me to say or any of us to say we know what's in people's hearts. We're not saying that. We're saying that the gospel is not Jesus makes your life better, although that's true. To believe in the gospel is to acknowledge I am woefully and sinfully immoral in my core being and from my seminal creation. And I have a rotten heart and a dying flesh from Adam, all the way from Adam. And I'm even going to pass that on to my children because of my fallen nature and your fallen nature. And so instead of, I want a better life, salvatory faith is this. I acknowledge that I need your forgiveness because of my woeful inadequacy morally. And Jesus, I accept that from you. And the scripture tells us that any person who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, is saved. They're saved. If we ever try to insert works, it's insulting to the gospel. It'd be like, and I've used this before, it'd be like if I bought my kids a bike for Christmas, and they open the bike and they go, this is really great, thank you so much for this gift. And then they pull out like 50 cents, let me pay you for that. You're like, well, first of all, it was like 45 at Walmart, so you're not even coming close to what I just paid for that. But therein, there the gift loses value too, because you you think you have to pay me back. This is a gift. I love you, and that's why I gave it to you. I don't want payment from you. There's no payment process. I don't want your five bucks down and fifty cents a week until you can finally pay back this gift I've given you. Salvation, it's a gift. And as soon as we make it, speaking in tongues or being baptized or going to church or tithing enough or having a morning time or devotional life or reading books or anything else, what we do is we say, hey, thanks for the gift. Now I'm going to pay you back. It's pompous to think that we can pay back for our sin. I mean, just tally up this morning. What was your thought life like? Did you argue about something? Did you read something on the internet and condemn someone else? Well, you know, I mean, could we ever truly make up for what we are? The answer is no. But instead, we have the gospel, and that is what saves us, trusting in what Christ did at Calvary. And we'll get into it. Works have a place, but works are a response of love because, as we are saying, faith isn't just knowing something. It's actually believing it. And if I actually believe and and, and embrace the knowledge that God loves me and paid everything for me so that I could be with him forever, that will change me. Now, even in saying that, I want to be careful because I think all of us can point to times in our life where we stagnated. Or even just issues. Have you ever had this experience? I think, so I got saved when I was 16. I'm 45 now. And there's definitely been times throughout my life where I've realized, like, I've been walking with the Lord for 20 years, and I never have seen that pride before. So was I never saved because I had sin? Have you ever experienced that when you realize after years, maybe decades of walking with Jesus, I never saw that bitterness in me before? I didn't realize that. And then you start to do, like, a lineage, and you go, wow, I can think of times in my life where I said this and I thought this and I treated someone like this and I did that. That has been in my heart for decades. Were you not saved? Was the blood not enough? Did you not work that out of you? We're so jacked that if the blood of Christ wasn't a complete salvation, we could not be saved. We're told that our heart is wicked and it's deceptive. Have you ever deceived yourself? But on any level, like if you thought to yourself, I mean, just on something like, I can do that later, I have enough time, and then you really don't. I'm not saying that's a sin or something, I'm saying that we deceive ourselves. We can deceive ourselves, and like, I could say this out loud, and it could work out for me, and then it doesn't. We don't have the faculty to fulfill the law, any law. And Paul's going to go through Romans, and he's going to tell us exactly what the law is for. That the law, especially when it was given, it had a couple functions. Number one, it governed an entire society. It governed a society that didn't know what viruses are and microbes and bacteria. So it had health things in there. Hey, if you puke into a wood bucket, throw it away because you can't sanitize it. So do you follow that law? probably don't have wood buckets. I don't. I have plastic ones. So there, we can use them according to the law. But so it had, it had a governing of a people. It talked about if someone does this or someone does that, how to deal with that. It had the moral law where it said, look, you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. You shouldn't covet what your neighbor has. You shouldn't lie to people. You shouldn't do those things. So there's a moral law. The moral law ex- ex- exposed all of us, and Paul's going to talk about that that the moral law actually is a tutor to smash us. That's what it's there for. The law is a mirror to show us you cannot do what God wants you and is asking you to do or to be who he is. It cannot happen. Paul uses the example of covetousness in chapter 7. He's going to say, When when the law, thou shalt not covet, came alive, meaning I observed it, saw it, absorbed it, I died, Paul says. It slew me. And my sin became evident. He says, the law provoked sin in me. Not that the law made him sin, but it revealed what he was really like. So the law has never been to make people righteous. Never, since his inception. In fact, he's going to go on, he's going to call the law weak and passing away. He's going to say that the law served a purpose, and now it's done. He calls the law a ministry of condemnation that has a fading glory. But then there's the law of the spirit of life that has eternal glory. So we have, we have to get away from some idea that there's some little, minute, righteous part of us that actually we're pretty squared away. It robs peace, it measures others, and it leaves us either feeling proud, proud or condemned. That's the end of self-righteousness and, and thinking that we have something to offer. But if we're constantly returning, and in humility and in confession, what we'll find is that's where true life is. I read a quote uh, this week, somebody put it on Facebook from, from C.S. Lewis, and the gist of it was it's not that we look at God's will and say it's not the best for us, it's that we often reject it because of how painful it will be for us. And I think it's really true. It's true in my life, where I look and I go, ah, sometimes I think, oh, maybe God's asking me to give this up, and I'm like, eh, that'd probably be the best, but frankly, I like sitting on my couch a lot, <laughs> whatever it might be. There's, there's those things where God's saying, hey, lay down that attitude, lay down those words. Lay down that bitterness. Lay down that anger. Lay down that pride. And we go, that would cost me so much. What would happen to me if I really actually forgave that person? How could I let go of that? But they wronged me. Have you ever had that weird dilemma? They wronged me. It would be unjust if I forgave them. It would be, that would cost me so much because they wronged me. And yet Jesus comes along and he says, if you forgive that person, it's life to you. And I don't think any of us go, no, it wouldn't be. But I think we go, that'd be too painful. It'd be too painful for me to walk in that. But the reality is righteousness through Christ, righteousness through his blood, and obedience by faith. And we'll talk about that next week because that's what he talks about his calling. That by faith, obeying and walking with him. So I hope this encourages you. I really do. Because this is the whole point of this book. Paul's saying, I want to lay out all these things for you So that in your darkest hour and when you're wondering what's going on, you can know that God loves you, that Christ paid the penalty for your sin, and that you are not condemned by him today as a believer in Jesus, regardless of what you've done and regardless of what you thought. And now you have, in a sense, the first day of the rest of your life to walk with him and to know him and to return to him and to grow and to walk in what God has for you. In Romans chapter 8, he's going to tell us we have a destiny you know, I love, it always reminds me of Star Wars and Darth Vader and, you know, it is your destiny or the, the, the uh, emperor, whatever it might be. And, you know, it's Luke's destiny to bring balance back to the force, right? It's your destiny. It's the same idea. A destiny is something that happens outside of your control, right? Isn't it interesting that Paul tells believers, this is why I'm, one of the reasons why I'm an eternal security guy, that Paul tells believers, it is your destiny to be conformed into the image of Christ. See, what you and I are deciding right now is how much of our destiny will be fulfilled now through yielding to Jesus and how much of our destiny will be fulfilled when we go through that 1 Corinthians 3.10 fire and and, and, and all the things that we held on to are burnt away because they can't go into heaven. So if I was proud and angry my whole life as a Christian, I'll stand before the Lord and it says that that'll be burnt away, I'll lose that. I'll lose that portion of my identity but I myself, in my purified state, will go into heaven. So it's nothing but good news today. There is no bad news in the gospel. There's no fine print. There's no what-ifs. It's just that God loves you, and he paid for your sin in Christ at the cross, and he raised him from the dead, and he ever lives to make intercession for you. He created you to have fellowship and relationship with him. And and to fulfill your, in a sense, every desire, true desire. We have, sometimes our desires latch on to false uh, answers, but it fulfills our every true desire that we have, whether it be for dominion or it be for uh, friendship, you know, just the need to be loved, all those things, to be satisfied in Christ through the cross because it's the power of God to salvation. So we have some uh, communion here and we'll uh, pray and a couple of the brothers will come forward and uh, just to somewhat keep in compliance, they'll hand you your communion um, and uh, then you're welcome to go back to your seat and partake of it as you uh, see fit and uh, our brother Dave will lead us in some worship. Father, thank you for the new covenant in your blood. Thank you for the bread um, that that represents your body. Lord, we praise you so much for giving your body for us And we praise you for uh, establishing a new covenant in your blood. Lord, thank you for the righteousness that comes through your blood. And as we partake of these things, would you, by your Holy Spirit, give us a sweet remembrance of you. Lord, when we consider these things, may our hearts be open. May we be honest uh, with you. May we consider ourselves and then eat of this bread and drink of this cup. Lord, thank you for being so kind and your mercy so Vast and so rich. Lord, where will we be without the grace of God? Thank you for this letter that Paul gave us to uh, lead us and guide us in what it is you have in store for us. And we pray a blessing as we work through it uh, these Sunday mornings. Lord, we bless you. We praise you. You've been very good to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.